<laughs> Thanks, guys. Welcome to my garage. Uh, this is where I've been working for the last couple couple days since all of this has gone down. It's been a crazy week. That's an understatement, right? Um, just last week, though, when I was getting my stuff together uh, to move from the office to my garage, uh, I couldn't get that famous REM song out of my head. You guys know the one? It's the end of the world as you know it, and I feel fine, right? Super uh, dark of me to have that stuck in my head, but I couldn't stop singing it. Um, it's twisted, I know. But the truth was, like like everyone else, I was not fine. I was freaking out. I was full of fear and anxiety, a little angry. Shaylee, that, 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 that video really helped me. I needed that. Um, but what was happening, obviously, was I was experiencing a lot of grief with the changes that were going on in the world. Uh, my leadership professor at Fuller, Scott Cormode, some of you guys might know him, uh, says this. He says, change is loss and loss is grief. And this pandemic has definitely been a huge change. It has been a huge loss. And this sense of grief and loss is exactly what we're facing in this pandemic. Um, but this is crazy. There's some hope here. On Monday, when I finally had time to sit down in my garage and open up the text and begin to prep for my sermon, um, I opened it up to Mark 13 and I was blown away by what I was reading. Scholars called this text the mini apocalypse. That's crazy. How did we, Light Shine Church, end up in Mark 13 this week? And to make things even crazier, Rob then texts me a podcast to listen to to help me with my sermon. And it's a rabbi and a preacher. And the title of the sermon on Mark 13, get this, is that song, the REM song. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I was going to title my sermon that before he sent that to me. So this whole Jesus thing might be real, guys. He is with us. Um, But let's jump into Mark 13. If you guys have your Bibles, I'm going to start in verse 1, and then I'm going to skip a section and end at the very end of it. Um, Here's Jesus' words in Mark 13. It says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And then Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and there will be wars and do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nations and the kingdom against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes in various places and famine. These are the beginnings of birth pains. And then jumping down to verse 24, it says, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that point, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. 
Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and, it le- and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. So be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servant in charge, each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say, everyone, watch. The word of the Lord. So many scholars have, like I said earlier, titled the section of the text, a mini apocalypse, because that's what it is. Jesus is using apocalyptic imagery. And what they mean by that is not the literal end of the world. But what we see here is Jesus saying that soon the temple system, this, this system, this religious system will be no more. And there will be a new way of living in this world. The temple will be destroyed. And this is a huge deal, obviously, right? Because the temple system is the center of Jewish religious, social, economic, and political life. But as we know it, it has been corrupted by Rome. And greedy religious leaders are participating in this corruption. And this is why we see Jesus in chapter 11 until now calling out the scribes, calling out the temple officials, even cursing a fig tree that represents the prosperity of Jerusalem and the temple system. And Jesus attacks this temple institution because of the way that they are using their power to exploit the poor. So some people are blinded at this time by the status of the temple and they're participating in this unjust system. But there's others that see it as corrupt. They see that and they see it as Rome's fault. And they're literally waiting, bearing arms for a Messiah-like king to rise up and triumphantly and violently redeem them from this oppressive system. But for Jesus, for Jesus, there is a different way. And this way doesn't come in the shape and the form of a sword, but it comes in the shape and form of a cross. But regardless, the disciples, again, are blinded by the glory and the stature of the temple in this text. And they're confused by Jesus's statements about his passing away. So they ask for further detail of how this will all look and when it will be. And Jesus doesn't want to tell them when it's going to be because he wants them to always be on guard. And Jesus tells them there is going to be war. There's going to be famine. There's going to be division. These things are imminent. It's going to happen. And even in the book of Matthew, it mentions illness. I had to throw that in there. It's not in Mark, but it is in Matthew. Again, this is a major deal though, because the apocalypse, the apocalypse here, it is not the end of the world. Literally what it is, is a rupture, a rupture in their current system of belief and For them, the glorious temple is going to be this, it's going to be torn down. And that's a major rupture in their current consciousness. So listen to the words 
of this Jewish first century historian, Josephus, who had nothing but awe for the temple. He says this, now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, reflecting back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But the temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow, for as those parts of it that were not glit, they were exceedingly white. Of its stone, some of them were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. So we have this imagery of the temple here for Josephus, Josephus, this historian who lived around Jesus's time. And that temple is pure white and it's purifying like fire. And its stature is giant and grandiose and magnificent. And I really don't blame Josephus for seeing the temple that way, obviously, because the temple was supposed to represent a mark of God's blessing to his people that God was following through on his faithful promising promises to them. But the truth was there was major interest by the ruling class in the temple at this time. And they had used the temple as a social political way to take advantage of the poor and further oppress people. And this is why we see Jesus throwing over the money changing tables and calling out those who sell doves for sacrifice and the scribes in the temple. It had become fundamentally an economic system that dominated the city's commercial life, making a mockery of Jerusalem. Some played the part in this system and and contributed towards the unjust system or simply just favored it, while others, keenly the zealots, took up arms and called for violent revolt and revolution. However, Jesus' call, Jesus' call to the disciples was different. It's what I like to call a third way, or scholars like to call a third way. It's a way of nonviolent revolution. It's nonviolent, but it's also a revolution. It's a way that doesn't participate in oppression and support such systems, even if it falsely promises prosperity and peace. And it's also a way that does not use violence to overthrow such systems. Jesus's way is the way of the cross. Jesus's way is a nonviolent revolution. And this text really is a call to faithful discipleship in a world of violence and terror. It's a call to faithfully serve and care for this world. Disciples are not called to participate in acts of violence, but they are called to stand for justice and mercy and love and work in acts of service. And his promise here is that it will get bad. To follow Jesus looks like the cross. It looks like you putting yourself in a position of a slave in a violent and dangerous world that may eat you up and spit you out. How's that sound? However, The hope for Christians, as we know, is that in the end, Jesus is going to make all things new. And we get to reveal that hope to the world now. So what does this mean for us here today during this pandemic? Well, what I think of is that this pandemic is interesting 
because it is apocalyptic. And when I say apocalyptic, what I mean is in a philosophical sense that it has ruptured our reality and, and revealed a real reality, truth to us, right? It has ruptured our reality and revealed that some of the things we depend on are faulty. So right now, if we want to interact, you can. You can type in some of these things into the, the text box. What are some things that this pandemic has revealed to you that you've maybe, you know, kind of participated in or leaned in or, or felt that, that, that you could find support in? For me, the economy is huge. I really thought that the economy was so good that it was going to just remain good. And we saw within a day that plummet, right? The economic system is frail. It's faulty. It's vulnerable, but many of us, including myself, easily put our hope in systems much like the temple system, if we're honest with ourselves. But Jesus calls us to remain awake, to have eyes wide open, and to see such systems. And we can put our hope in presidents, we can put our hope in the economy, and we can put our hope in, in national security. But as disciples, the promise is those things are fleeting and will not stand, and that is not where our hope should be. So this pandemic really has a gift to it. It has revealed how frail those things are, that those things are not where our hope comes from. So what is Jesus getting at here? Well, in the last section, he tells us to remain awake and to act like we are slaves waiting for a master to come back any minute. And it's interesting because there is a connection to the disciples falling asleep in the garden of Gethsemane here, almost if Jesus is saying this world that we live in is the garden of Gethsemane. And the tragedy is that the disciples don't stay awake and eventually abandon him at each watch of the night because they do not understand his call to the cross. And we as disciples are called to embrace the world as Gethsemane, to stay awake in the darkness of our current situation to refuse to compromise the politics of the cross, to stand with the oppressed and not compromise the way of the cross. The powers will be toppled through the nonviolent power of the cross. And this sermon warns against equating Jesus's militant nonviolence with triumphalistic power politics. It is a call to non-aligned radicalization where we as disciples take on the form of slave, promise that we will be hated, but that we can make a difference in love. Mark's, Mark calls the discipleship community to live in history with open eyes, to look deep into the present events beyond the conflicting claims of those vying for power. We must search for and attack the very root of violence and oppression that holds the human story hostage. And the coming of the kingdom has nothing to do with triumphalism, it comes from below in solidarity with the human family in the dark night of suffering. The world is Gethsemane, and we are called to historical insomnia, to stay awake, to stay awake with Jesus, and to stand with those who suffer. Will you stay awake with him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have all this stuff, all this stuff in your presence, in your control. 
And I pray for those who are suffering right now and that you would give your disciples courage to stand on the front lines and to care for those who are hurting. I pray that you'd care for Lightshine community and that you'd protect us and them, but ultimately you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and an eagerness to follow your spirit during this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Chad. We're going to spend a few moments uh, in prayer, and that prayer time will be finished by the Lord's Prayer uh, together.